Welcome to In the Know with Neo, and thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Joshua Moore, and for those who aren't aware, Neo is a student-led social justice initiative that amplifies the voices of underrepresented small business owners within the Cincinnati community, and we're excited to share this week's episode with you. Greetings to those tuning in to In the Know with Neo. I'm your host, Joshua Moore, and this week I have the grace of speaking with Dr. Letitia Bates. Dr. Bates is the Associate Dean for Inclusive Excellence and Community Partnerships at the University of Cincinnati's College of Arts and Sciences, as well as an Associate Professor here at the University. But Dr. Bates' impact stretches beyond just the campus community, uh, as she's seen as a teacher, mentor, researcher, activist, and much more. So I'm beyond excited to dig deeper into the topics and conversation. But first, Dr. Bates, how are you? And how have you been as the semester comes to an end? I am here. <laughs> <laughs> Alive. Um, just, you know, trying to just trying to finish out the the academic year you know I think before we got started we were talking about the fact that like folks who teach classes and students you all are all done mm -hmm. but us administrators we are not done yeah. um, until the university goes on our university break which is that Friday before Christmas so just sort of counting down the days yes. and trying to wrap things up but I'm good I'm good Perfect. I'm so happy to be here yes yes I know some students are still working as you'll see in the background finishing up exams um, but we recently started in the know with Neo this semester uh, which we really with the goal to elevate Neo's awareness and brand through storytelling as we are today, displaying the importance of data in business and the challenges faced by minority businesses, uh, with the goal of just creating Neo as a familiar face within the community. And I thought, what a better person to speak to than yourself due to your work within UC's community, passion for inspiring the next generation of leaders, um, and ensuring an equitable and sustainable future for all people, especially those within the minority community, uh, which highly correlates to what we do at NEO um, in our mission and foundation. Uh, so let's get right to the first question. Uh, for those who aren't aware, who is Dr. Letitia Bates uh, to you? Kind of like an elevator pitch. Ooh. And can you give a brief overview um, of how you landed at the University of Cincinnati? Yeah. Uh, and what impact you're creating through your roles today. I know that was like yeah. a lot of questions I know, it's in like, one. How much time do we have here? <laughs> um, okay, this is, I love this question so much because it mostly, it forces me to sort of reflect on who I think that I am. Um, and I want to say at the outset, you know, I have all of these ideas about who I think that I am, but what's most important to me is the people. Um, who do the people think that I am? And so I think what I'm going to say is what I hope the people think that I am. Um, and so I think that I am a, uh, equity-focused servant leader um, who is really focused on ensuring that when I'm no longer on this earth in physical form that the work that I did had an impact to make things better and easier for the future. I have to say the work that I do, I do for my children um, and I do for future generations and so I am someone that is uh, immensely dedicated to living authentically um, and creating safe space for people, all people, to to thrive and to excel and to be their best self. Um, that's important to me. How did I land here at the University of Cincinnati? This is not a sexy story at all, actually. <laughs> I think sometimes people think like, it's gonna be this amazing story. No, I received my PhD in one of the, at that time, uh, worst markets. It was in 2009 and the jobs were so scarce. People were like, oh my God, people were talking about staying in graduate school for an extra year because they didn't know if they were gonna be able to get jobs because there were just so few jobs at that time. Um, 
I'm originally from Chicago. My husband is originally from Detroit. And so we wanted to be back in the Midwest. We were coming from um, the Phoenix area. I got my PhD at Arizona State University. And so we were looking at jobs in this area um, because we wanted to be here um, in the Midwest. And um, this job at the University of Cincinnati became available and I shamefully did not even know that UC was a thing. Um, but my husband is a huge football fan, okay. um, college football fan. And so he like dressed me for my interview. He was like, you gotta wear red and black in case they're football fans. And we did a whole tutorial on uh, football at University of Cincinnati so that I could connect with people okay. once I got here. And I got here and um, the department was the most welcoming place I had ever been. I had been on many job interviews that cycle. But being here at the University of Cincinnati with the faculty that I met and the students that I met when I came here, it felt like home. Mm -hmm. And so I went from not knowing what University of Cincinnati was to wanting this job so badly, um, only to be disappointed actually, really? um, because I was not the first choice for this job. Mm -hmm. They actually chose somebody else over me big eye roll <laughs> um, and I was a little bit devastated but I was like you know what it's just it is what it is and um, even in the choosing a different candidate over me for whatever reasons um, the department reached out to me like we want you to know that this was not you know anything about you and it ended up working out that you know that candidate turned them down and I was able to to get the job and so I think if there's a lesson in that um, you know sometimes you may not be the first choice but if you are the right choice and if it's the right choice for you it, it can work out and so I'm just happy that I landed here yeah, yeah I think you made some really great points and over the weekend uh, me and my friend have a conversation over legacy and just like the things you leave after uh -huh. so I'm glad you hit on that and a similar story being from Columbus Ohio I'm um, having a brother who also went to Cincinnati when I got here I was like this is the place that I think yeah. that I really enjoy and I've said it I think probably every episode but I do say it Colum uh, Columbus natives don't enjoy it but I like Cincinnati yeah. More than Columbus, I do have <laughs> oh, to say Oh, you're going to be that. in trouble. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but um, Cincinnati's a special place, and I think that resonated with you um, yeah. since you've been here. Yeah, since uh, your inception, you started working. Um, so as we stated, you hold the role of Associate Dean mm -hmm. for Inclusive Excellence in Community Partnerships, uh, which was introduced within the college with, uh, in 2009. Um, so I'm interested to hear, what does Inclusive Excellence mean to you yeah. within the world of academia, education, and society overall, since it can be kind of an, an ambiguous term. Yeah, man, y'all are getting deep around here. <laughs> y'all just- We try. Man, okay. Um, so I do wanna just make one clarification. I have been here at the university since 2009, okay. but my role as associate dean has only been um, a thing since 2020. Okay. The office was created in 2020. Um, what does inclusive excellence mean to me? I actually sort of hate the phrase. Interesting. I love it. I love a new take. <laughs> Mostly because people don't know what it means, yeah. right? And I think that it has become one of those buzzwords that people sort of just throw around with no real metric to measure it. Um, but because it is in my title, I often have to say what it means yeah. to me. So what does inclusive excellence means to me? It means that we're creating a space that both honors the history of the past, that helps us make sense of how we are at the places that we're at in terms of systematic racism and discrimination. Um, while also thinking about like, how do we think about that past? I use the word honor there, which is a little bit weird, but I think 
honor in the sense that like we know it we understand it we can make sense of it we can see what happened right there's this like really colloquial phrase like if you don't know your history you're bound to repeat it right and so when I think about honoring the history um, of how we got to where we are that's what I'm thinking about and so knowing that history to create space for all people to thrive in the areas in which they want to thrive and giving them space to feel like they could do that with no barriers that to me is inclusive excellence and I I think when we have true senses of inclusion and belonging, excellence is easy because people are able to operate in their most optimal state, right? And so knowing that history helps us figure out what we need to do to get to a place where there's a greater sense of belonging so people can operate at their optimal state mm -hmm. so that we can achieve excellence. Yeah, I love that the point and the way you put that together when you allow people to be their genuine and unique yeah. selves it then creates that gateway to mm -hmm. um, to excellence in the way people work. I know you hit on understanding and honoring history. Um, and one question that I did had uh, was interest. What led you to the study of sociology in your undergrad? Yeah. And what intrigues you to continue to learn about the space of sociology overall? Yeah, so uh, also not a sexy story. <laughs> We got a bunch of non-sexy <laughs> stories. Um, so I am a first-generation student, okay. um, and so I don't, like many first-generation students, we don't really know, like, what majors are, right? So we know sort of those uh, professions that we see in our community. Um, teachers, I knew I did not want to be a teacher um, at the uh, lower levels, grade levels. Um, uh, I didn't want to be in um, one of those sort of servant service industries. Like, I didn't want to be a police officer or a lawyer or any of those things. So I didn't really know what majors were outside of that. Um, but I was curious about, like, how I could contribute to my community um, and mental health has always been something that's super important to me and so I was like oh I want to be a psychologist okay. right and so I entered um, my undergraduate institution um, as a psychology major um, I could not pass some of the required uh, courses for psychology. I think there's also a lesson here. When I entered into my undergraduate uh, career, I graduated from one of the top high schools in the city, but I was still not prepared. Mm -hmm. And so I had to take a number of what we might refer to as remedial courses um, at my institution. They were 09 courses. Um, and I could not pass a couple of the psychology courses. And I was like, man, I cannot. My mother was like, you gonna come home if I see another F or another. And I was like, oh Lord, I can't, I can't <laughs> go home. What am I gonna do? I gotta, gotta stick this thing out. Um, and so then I just took a bunch of intro courses I got the advice to take a bunch of intro courses um, to see like what might fit. And I took my very first sociology course um, and I was hooked. It was actually what I wanted to do because what I didn't know at the time was that sociology was really the gateway because it helped mm -hmm. me do exactly what I was just talking about, right? And so sociology helps us understand these processes while also grounding them in historical context and figuring out a pathway forward, right? It's not just about knowing what happened. It's about knowing what happened, why it happened, how we potentially could have avoided it from happening. But now that it did happen, what can we do to move forward? And I really wanted to be the change and, and to contribute to the change in our society and sociology was the way to do that and I never looked back <laughs> I love that I love that and I think it's so very interesting a lot of different varying topics since you are in the College of Arts and Sciences mm -hmm. but there's a lot of overlap of what the different colleges are doing mm -hmm. and that's one thing I found interesting that every college has their own 
subsection of inclusive excellence. Mm -hmm. well, I know I worked with the Office of Inclusive Excellence here um, within the Linder College of Business as a social media intern. Um, and one of the questions that I do have is a lot of students are thinking about furthering their um, academic and educational careers. So what interested, what interested you in receiving your master's mm -hmm. and PhD within the space of sociology? I know as well during your PhD, uh, physiology or what it, philosophy was also oh, yeah. incorporated <laughs> into that as well. Yeah, so I think um, it, it is sort of what drives me, what you know made me want to get the PhD. When I took that first sociology course, it was the first time I had been, I was in my second semester, I was a second semester sophomore when I took that first sociology class, and I was the first black faculty member I had ever had. Um, and I was super excited because I was like, oh, I can't wait to take more courses with him. Um, and then he wasn't there anymore. <clears throat> and I didn't really understand as an undergraduate, you know, I think there are lots of things that, that students don't understand about the different ranks that faculty hold. I think now your generation of students is much more uh, learned than my generation of students. And so you all probably have a better handle on it than we had back, back in my day. Um, <laughs> But I didn't know, but now at this big age, I now know he was an adjunct professor. Okay. Um, and I only ever had one other black faculty member in the entirety of my academic career wow. um, at my undergraduate institution. And so that really had an impact on me. And once I figured out that in order to be a professor, I needed to have the PhD mm -hmm. and needed to have that grounding in philosophical understanding of sociological traditions. Um, that's why I wanted to get the PhD. I wanted to make sure that other first generation kids, other black girls who come from the ghetto in inner cities could see somebody in the front of their classroom teaching them at the collegiate level um, so that they can have a sense of belonging. I think that my sheer existence um, is an act, is a radical act of resistance um, that gives hope to generations that are watching me um, in the classroom, watching me in my administrative position. And that's why I wanted to get my PhD. Wow, I'm like yeah. sitting here in shock. The oh. way that you put your thoughts <laughs> together is like poetry. Um, but as we talked a bit over so or sociology in the overarching realm of how you got interested in DNI, uh, the article published on the College of Arts and Sciences website also stated from a sociology, sociology PhD candidate um, at UC that Dr. Bates will also tell you that she's not supposed to be here. Um, and in a way, uh, many minorities in business, academia, and life in general feel this way. So I wanted to ask how this perspective changed your view yeah. on the work you do and how it motivates you to maintain that passion yeah. and perseverance that you display through your work and uh, just personal brand. Yeah, I wanna eradicate that feeling. I don't ever want any student to have that feeling, right? And in some ways it's a bit tricky because that sense of like, I'm not supposed to be here is what drives me, mm -hmm. right? But I know that's not true for everybody. For yeah. some people it becomes a huge barrier mm -hmm. um, and it manifests in a way that creates roadblocks for them and they're not able to continue. And so I wanna work to eradicate that. I wanna work to ensure that every student knows that they do in fact belong here. And if somebody told you that you don't, tell them to come see me, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's not okay, but we do know that because of systematic racism and injustice that a lot of black kids, Latino kids, uh, LGBTQIA kids, um, depending on what discipline you're in, if you're in the sciences, uh, women feel like they don't belong in 
those various disciplines. And so I want to do work and I want to uplift voices to show them that they do, in fact, belong um, in those spaces. And not just that they belong in those spaces, but they need to be there and that they should be able to excel in those spaces in the same way that their white counterparts do. Yeah, I think that really encompasses one of my greatest experiences here at the University of Cincinnati as being in Business Fellows, which is a diverse group mm -hmm. of students within the Linder College of Business and that representation and excellence and really putting forth and knowing that we're supposed to be here and that we're representing for a lot of the people um, that are within the same standpoints and situations as well as those coming up. It's really encouraging and inspiring to see those around you holding to um, a stage of ex excellence and it pushes you mm -hmm. to be better. So I, I definitely want to reinforce that point. And in the same article published, um, the in the same article published by the College of Arts and Sciences, Jennifer Malott, I hope I'm saying her last name right, which is the Associate Dean for Social Sciences in the College of Arts and Sciences, stated that the work that Letitia Bates is doing is building a more diverse and inclusive university where everyone feels they belong. And belonging is such an important aspect, okay. as we just spoke over, of many individuals' educational journey and in life. So I'm interested, are th were there any like defining moments within your educational pursuit or life where you felt you didn't belong and then how that caused you to seek belonging for others? Yeah, <coughs> I think that um, there are so many. <laughs> Um, probably at every stage of my academic career, right? So I just said when I entered my undergrad institution, um, I was not as prepared as I thought I was, right? And so I had to take um, 096 English, right, to learn to write um, because I thought I knew how to write, but I didn't know how to write. And so, like, having coming from um, thinking that you are in the top 10% um, in your high school uh, to go to college to then find out that you have to take remedial courses the right like that for me was the start it was yeah. like what you mean yeah. like um, and so that <clears throat> having that experience right was sort of one example of a, of a lack of sense of belonging um, I think um, there are some sort of trivial, what feel like trivial um, examples, but like are really sort of examples that touch on how systematic uh, racism works, how lack of capital or differing types of understanding of capital um, matter. And so I'm saying all of that to sort of set up what I'm about to say. Um, and so in uh, the academy, uh, we do a lot of drinking. I don't know why, we just do. Maybe we shouldn't. Um, my husband always points out like if somebody's recovering, uh, they're in big trouble hanging out with a bunch of academics because we drink quite frequently. Um, and the first time that I sort of realized that I didn't possess the type of cultural capital that other folks around me possessed was in graduate school. We were all um, out to dinner. It was probably our first week of graduate school. <clears throat> and um, everybody was ordering dinner and ordering wine and having these really um, interesting conversations about the type of wine that they like and talking about wine pairings mm -hmm. um, with food and um, I don't think I had ever drank wine before, yeah. right? Um, 
not that black people don't drink wine, you know what I'm saying? Black people drink wine. Um, but like where I came from, we was drinking Hennessy. We weren't drinking <laughs> wine, you know what I'm saying? So I was like, I don't know how to pick wine. And it was just this immense feeling. Again, it feels trivial, but it was this immense reminder that I didn't know the things that the other people around me knew about how to engage in this community. Right. And so then that was something else I had to learn. Right. I had to learn how to pair wine with food. That night I actually just ended up ordering exactly what somebody else had ordered, which I didn't even like. And I remember that so vividly because it was a reminder that they had access to knowledge that I did not have access to. And whether we like it or not, people knowing or not knowing in that moment meant something. And people were talking about it later. Who couldn't order wine, right? Like that's trivial, that has nothing to do with yeah. my academic prowess, but it was about the social and cultural capital that people possessed. And I realized in that moment that I didn't have the same kind that they had. And that mattered, it's trivial, but it's such an important data point to how we think about what we are teaching people and what we value, um, what are our standards of, of what is good cultural capital. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a very interesting and something, a new topic that I've heard of culture and like social capital, mm -hmm. but it's definitely on display as you walk throughout your education, throughout your journey mm -hmm. in life. And I know like one thing a lot of people say is what you don't know is scary. So like I know yeah. I've uncovered a lot of facts um, about <coughs> history and the things that have occurred in it's very surprising and shocking to, n to know that you didn't know that. Yeah. And when you first uncover it, you can just kind of awaken and like open your eyes to yeah. what's truly happening and really have you question the things you still may not know. Yeah. And it just goes for both sides, whether it's in diversity, um, equity and inclusion, or anything else. Um, so I think that was, a, that was a, really, a really good story and it opened my eyes to, to some things yeah. as well, which brings me, so you talked about um, inclusion and belonging I know when you got to the university, you co-founded the Black Faculty Association mm -hmm. in, 2000 in 2015. So I want to ask the first simple question of what is the Black Faculty Association? It is a family. Um, it is a community of folks who are dedicated to um, lifting each other and creating space and pathways for folks that come behind us. Perfect. Yeah. And then the next follow-up I have is what impact have you seen it create and what impact do you see it continually creating? Yeah, I think, um, <coughs> excuse me, we are doing um, the Black Faculty Association a huge service to the institution. Yeah. I think that um, University of Cincinnati, not unlike any other you know, institution of higher education, has a history. Um, we think about McMicken, mm -hmm. right, that suggests that this space, the institution may not be safe or welcoming to folks of color, particularly to black folks. Um, I also think about the city, right? Like people don't talk about it anymore, but black folks continue to talk about and remember the legacy of the race riots, right? Mm -hmm. And so when black people come to the University of Cincinnati to interview for faculty positions, they have a bit of skepticism or concern. And part of what the Black Faculty Association is able to do is we're able to um, show them that we have been able to make a home here. And so, for example, one of the things that we do is anytime a college is hiring, we've offered this service to the College of Business before. If you have a black candidate that's coming in, BFA, which we call ourselves for short, meets with the candidate. Wow. 
Um, we just had a breakfast with a candidate for CECH, um, and I think that person has accepted CECH's job, and one of the things that she said is it was BFA. Wow. And so we really sort of spend time talking to them honestly and transparently, right? It's like the Facts of Life theme song. You take the good, you take the bad. Um, we tell them about all the things because we want them to come here um, knowing what they're getting into, but also understanding that they're coming to a community, they're coming to a family. Um, and we're creating space for black faculty who have already chosen to be here to thrive. We have our holiday party this weekend. Mm -hmm. um, which I'm super excited about. Um, and one of the things that we know is that uh, a barrier is family in some ways. And I don't mean that negatively. I am uh, have an amazing husband and three amazing children who I love. Um, and sometimes it's hard to do things because you have to hire a sitter. You want to be in community, but you just don't have time. And so as part of our holiday party, we have a nanny that is coming to play with the children. We invite spouses to come and partners to come because they are also a part of the community. Our goal in BFA is to ensure that people are seen as whole individuals and not just people who are supposed to be publishing, teaching, and getting grant dollars. Mm -hmm. You are a whole individual and your family is a part of that um, and it creates community for our families, right? And so BFA kids know each other. BFA spouses and partners commiserate with each other. <laughs> Um, about what it's like to be married to an academic. And I think that that's a huge service that people don't see as really a diversity, equity, inclusion initiative. When you create space for black faculty, you also have to create spaces for their families, mm -hmm. um, whatever that might mean, right? Um, because that's a part of our culture and that's important to us. Yeah, I love that. And I think it like ties together what you spoke over, like the different types of capital, mm -hmm. from social to personal to educational. Like you're caring for the family needs, you're caring for the interpersonal needs, educational mm -hmm. needs. Um, so I, I really enjoyed that. I think it's really great how you meet with new candidates as well yeah. and kind of offer them that candor yep. of like the good and the bad yes. so it creates that, that balance. Um, and in an article by the news record from 2020, uh, you stated you were in two modes at the time. Yeah. <laughs> One was to deal with immediate things that are happening right now. Um, and the second was longer, longer term and exciting goals. Um, so ha as the years have progressed, I'm wondering what are some of the immediate things yeah. you're focused on right now? And what are some goals you're excited for for the future? Oh, my goodness. I'm sort of like gritted like a Cheshire cat because there's so <laughs> many things. Um, okay. Uh, there have been some really exciting changes in the College of Arts and Sciences. Um, related to my office and I think um, it is setting the college up to really be leaders in this work and so in particular uh, we restructured the college such that the Office of Human Resources reports into my office okay. and so all of our hiring, um, firing, um, salary, compensation, all of that stuff flows through the Office of Inclusive Great. Excellence and that is huge yeah. it is huge and I don't think that people 
often really understand how huge that is. I think part of understanding how we got to where we are um, in terms of the climate of diversity, equity, inclusion, or lack thereof, has to do with process, policies, and procedures, right? Mm -hmm. And there are sort of simple little things that we can do, right? And so think about how we hire, right? We know that here at the University of Cincinnati, black faculty only make up about a little under 4% of all the faculty in the institution. We have such a small population of faculty of color, but we know that we have a large body of students of color. And so how do we get more faculty of color here? We have to be intentional about how we hire. So who's going to ensure that people are being intentional about hiring if you don't have a person that's responsible for doing that work, right? And so having that office, our HR office, report into my office is one of those, you know, little things that is a huge thing to help really um, make a difference. What am I excited about moving forward? Um, can I be honest? Of course, of um, course. I don't even really know because one, there are so many things, and two, there is so much sort of, um, necessity to be responsive to mm -hmm. things, right? Mm -hmm. Things that are consistently happening. Um, and again, I don't think that ANS is unique, um, but there are things that are sort of always on fire, right? Um, as people are on this journey, um, learning more, wanting to learn more, um, making mistakes or having growth opportunities. I stay quite busy oh, yeah. um, being sort of a fixer, <laughs> if you will, which if someone were to ask me sort of like, what's the downside of this work? That is the downside. Trying to ensure to create time um, to be much more forward looking mm -hmm. and less reactive. Um, and that is if, you know, I'm, I'm be, I, we're gonna be transparent with the people today. Um, that is something that I am having a lot of difficulty trying to manage at this time because the college is so large. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things I envy about a place like Linder is you all are really specialized and focused in a couple of things, right? Mm -hmm. And the College of Arts and Sciences, we literally run the gamut. Yeah. We have poets and we have chemists, yeah. right? And so trying to ensure that I'm being responsive to the diversity, equity, inclusion needs of all of those different groups of academics, plus our staff, which are a huge and integral part to the success of the college and our students, right? And so thinking about all the stakeholders, um, it, it becomes really difficult to think about like all the things I want to do um, in the future when there are so many things happening so quickly on a daily basis. Yeah, it's very interesting. You, know, you talked about being reactive and then being proactive. Mm -hmm. and I think it's shown just throughout the Black Faculty Association and having the uh, human resources come through the um, inclusion of the piece of inclusion excellence within the Ar College of Arts and Sciences because what you're doing that's reactive I think it's flowing over mm -hmm. into like the proactive yes. and future facing so I think it still does have that yes. effect well thank you you make me feel better <laughs> <laughs> so we've talked about a lot um, from like the academia world to how you got here in your journey but one thing I always like to ask the guests is what makes Cincinnati special in your eyes, uh, yeah. especially in regard to the minority community, since you were born in Chicago, went to school in Arizona, um, and have been working within Cincinnati since 2009. Yeah, Cincinnati has always just sort of felt like home. Um, 
I, I said earlier before we started recording, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna repeat it now. Cincinnatians, please don't kill me. Um, Cincinnati to me feels like a, a, a baby Chicago, and I really appreciate sort of the culture of the city, the centering of black excellence in the city, um, the amount of community activism, outreach and work that is happening in the city if you endeavor to be actively involved in creating equitable spaces, there's so much opportunity to do that here in the city of Cincinnati. And I just think that that to me is super appealing. You don't have to search for how to make a difference in the city of Cincinnati. You can literally just go anywhere and help and make a difference and that to me is what draws me to the city of Cincinnati. That's what makes it feel like home. Um, I was just telling the job candidate that we interviewed earlier this week, um, cause she was talking about how small Cincinnati is based on c compared to where uh, the city that she grew up in. And I was like, girl, we don't have Beyonce here more than <laughs> once, right? Like Janet Jackson done yeah. been here, right? Like Cincinnati, despite its sort of size as a mid-sized city, is a large city in the minds of people, right? Beyonce not coming somewhere where she can't make no money. Yes, you know what yes. I'm saying? And she done been here multiple times, right? And so Cincinnati in that way is in my heart, and I think in the heart of most Cincinnatians is a large city, mm -hmm. um, one that's full of love and community um, and care for people, and that resonates with me. Yeah, I think yeah, I, I uh, abide by everything you said. Cincinnati is a very, a very special place. Yeah. I, mean, I think and that's a, it has so many different buckets from business to the cultural standpoint mm -hmm. to the minority businesses to the arts and sciences mm -hmm. uh, with a lot of businesses and initiatives going on. Um, so definitely agree. Um, taking more onto like the research side um, of what you've done. I recently started a book. It's called Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. Mm -hmm. And one of the most shocking and eye-opening statistics I found within uh, was quoted, it says, when students were asked to identify their race on a pretest questionnaire, that simple act of identifying their race was sufficient to prime them with all negative stereotypes associated with African Americans and academic achievement, and the number of items they got right uh, compared to when they didn't identify their race was cut in half. Um, so I'm interested, much of your research has been focused um, on inconspicuous roots of systematic injustice. Mm -hmm. Cause so could you speak over the meaning of systematic injustice yeah. and how it often isn't visible to the natural eye? Yeah, I think that um, it's those sort of underlying insidious things, right? So what is it about simply just telling someone your race mm -hmm. that impacts how you perform, yeah. right? Um, but we know what folks think about black folks as it relates to academic achievement. I cannot tell you how many times people are often surprised um, when they learn my credentials. I actually, I have my earrings on today. I have my earrings on that say Dr. Bates. I've literally had somebody ask me, who is Dr. Bates? Really? Right, and so this notion that a black woman who look as good as me, um, who's as young as me, can, can be a doctor yeah. is really lost on people. And 
even young children know that, right? And so if we think about what it means to have systematic injustice in schools, we think about the difference between the types of courses that are offered in high schools, right? And so um, we love, love, love the city of Cincinnati. We're dedicated um, to doing um, work in the city of Cincinnati. And we know that there are differences between the types of schools that exist in the city of Cincinnati versus in surrounding areas, mm -hmm. right? And so we know that there are some high schools in the city of Cincinnati where kids cannot take AP courses. Wow. Yeah. Right? Like, that is what we mean when we talk about systematic injustice. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to take an AP course for your future trajectory? right when you get to college what does that mean for your ability to think that you can go to college forget ap courses let's just talk about higher level math there are some places where kids can't get calculus right and so if i know i want to be an engineer and i can't get calculus what does that mean for how quickly i'm going to be able to go into that major mm -hmm. go into that profession and so when we think about sort of the insidious invisible types of and i'm sort of using invisible loosely right because it's quite visible if you don't have certain courses offered at your school but people don't think about those kinds of things one of the things about the city of cincinnati when you are from here even when you're not from here one of the first questions people ask you, do you know one of the first questions people ask you when they meet you in the city of Cincinnati? You may Where not- Where are you from? What high school did you go to? Yes. What high school did you go to? <laughs> yeah. Why are they asking that question? to learn your, your roots and your background, where you came from. It is a question about your level of both intelligence and affluence and to mm. tell them something That's about really the kind of capital that you may or may not have. Mm. Right? And so that's what I'm talking wow, about when I'm talking that. about systematic injustice. We know that certain schools in certain communities in certain neighborhoods have access to certain things and others don't. And we know that that access or lack thereof has a long-term effect on what kids are able to go on and do. Mm -hmm. We know it has a long-term effect on what people think those kids can go on and do. And then that becomes a part of how they see themselves, right? That is sort of the root of imposter syndrome in some ways, right? And so I know that when they see my name on a resume, they're going to read certain things yeah. into that. And so how they see me, what they think about me, that is going to impact how confident I'm able to walk into that room. And that's what happened to those kids that Gladwell's talking about in his book. They knew instinctively what people would think. Mm -hmm. They also knew that if they did too well, people would think they cheated. Yeah. Because there's no way. There's no way, mm -hmm. right? They don't belong there in yeah. that space, right? Yeah. For everyone listening, definitely recommend uh, the book by Malcolm Gladwell. There's a lot of shocking and kind mm -hmm. of scary statistics and yeah. results and research that he's done in there. I'm only halfway through, so I still have a lot to, it's a lot to get through. But we can continue. So you also stated uh, in the article by the news record, we should all be engaging in this equity work and should uh, think about how every pra should be thinking about how every practice that we have taught to us uh, from a framework that did not consider equity right and that you would like for us as a community, as a country, and as a world to be thinking more about how we can intentionally unlearn 
and mm-hmm. relearn a more equitable framework in every aspect of what we do in our lives. So what tips would you give to those listening, uh, especially students on how to become educated and follow the advice yeah. given? You have to read. I think, um, and I'm using the word read somewhat loosely too. Um, audiobooks are amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're like me, you like to touch things and highlight things. Um, you have to read, you have to know, right? It's back to what I started with about honoring sort of and understanding the history, right? If you don't know things, you don't know what you don't know. You don't know what you need to unlearn, right? You think that you have these yeah. sort of um, feelings about things because that's just the way that you feel. No, you have these feelings about things because you learned to have these feelings about these things. And so how might those feelings be harmful, right, to others? Um, and, and, you know, there are small examples of that. Even when we think about, and I'm sure in, in the College of Business you all probably have to think about this much more than a sociologist, for example, what does it mean to be dressed professionally? Mm -hmm. Like, right, what does that mean? What does it mean to have a professional hairstyle, right? Like, what does that mean? That is rooted in Eurocentric white supremacist ideals. Mm -hmm. We know what people mean when they say dressed properly, right? It means something super specific, right? But for black folks, that might mean showing up in a dashiki. Right. But if you show up in a dashiki to an interview, you think you're going to get that job. Mm. Probably very low. Probably not. Right. Unless it's black folks that's hiring you Mm -hmm. to work in a black space. You know what I mean? But I think these are the kinds of things when I talk about like unlearning, what does it mean to think about other ways that we can wear our hair, that we can dress? What does it mean to think about maybe wine isn't a um, indicator of class, if you will, right? Like what does that what does that look like if we unlearn those things and we unlearn those standpoints and come with a fresh view that takes into account other people's experiences of what is normal what is culturally appropriate for them and make space for that to also exist um, alongside of those things that, that others value. Yeah, I think you made a really good point. It's very hard to wean away from the habits and the mm-hmm. foundation that you've already had. But and as you said, like the things you don't know can scare you, but when you do figure out, you have to make that conscious mm-hmm. effort to make that change. And that yep. can be very hard based off certain circumstances yep. and situations. Um, you're in, but since Neo's consulting is based in business analytics, I want to look more into like the objective and analytical conversation. Uh, so as you've grown in your research, uh, I was doing my own research and I saw uh, that you're heavily involved in this space and continually understood the importance of objectivity and like quantitative analysis mm-hmm. in order to create change. Mm-hmm. How important would you say these skills are within the space that you're working in? Oh my God, they are huge because people misuse numbers and statistics all the time or they use them um, inaccurately or out of context, right? And so I'm gonna pick on the University of Cincinnati for a moment. One of the things that is so scary about numbers is it depends on what your benchmark is, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you look at U.S. News World Report, you look at the data as it relates to the number of black faculty. Um, I keep talking about black folks because I'm black, so that's what I know the most. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? If you look at where 
all institutions in the U.S. are in relation to what percentage of their faculty are black faculty. UC ranks super high. We are like in the top 10% of universities in terms of our number of black faculty. You might be inclined to be like, oh my God, that is awesome. UC is doing such yeah. a great job. Pause. Only 4%. This is why numbers is so important, yeah. right? Because if you look at we're in the top 10%, you will be inclined to pat yourself on the back. Mm -hmm. But if you dig deeper, you know it's only 4% wow. of our faculty are black faculty. We're the best of the worst. Yeah. Right? And so I do want to give the university its kudos, right, for making headway. But looking at those numbers and those statistics alone can be misleading and can make us miss the larger Point. This is why understanding who is in your numerator, who is in your denominator, understanding what it is that you're actually measuring is super important because you could get the wrong message that could unintentionally be harmful, right? Mm -hmm. If we only stopped at the 10% of all universities, we would stop all our efforts because we're doing great. Mm -hmm. But we only have 4% black faculty. Uh -huh. That's terrible, yeah. right? But it's the best of the worst. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I read a book over summer. It was How to Become a Data Head, and it talks about how people apply statistics and, like, mm -hmm. the analytical analyses, and it, like, spoke on, like, benchmarks and what, like, the percentage increase they're talking over, like, the Thompson ranking list mm -hmm. is going off of. So I think that's that's really interesting as well, and just how, like, the um, objective side combines mm -hmm. with the subjective that's side. That's right. Um, and kind of switching topics very quickly. I, th I saw this while I was doing research, and I thought it was uh, a very cool experience. I saw that you got to do the keynote speech during Cincinnati's 43rd annual Martin Luther yes. King Junior Day celebration. It sounds like an amazing experience. <sighs> so could you speak over shortly of that and just how, how it made you feel? Really? It was surreal. Yeah. It was surreal. I don't know if you've ever been in music hall, um, but it was in Music Hall, and um, I was terrified. Can I just say that out loud? Yeah. Because I, it's probably the largest crowd I've ever spoken to in that fashion, um, where it was like everybody was there to see what I had to say, and it was an absolutely packed house, um, and it was actually on Dr. King's birthday, the year that I did it, um, and it was just wanting to honor his legacy. I think that um, as, a, as a nation, we have mishandled the legacy of Dr. King. Um, we have sort of quoted him out of context so many times um, to weaponize him against people of color who are enacting acts of resistance. Um, and we've only sort of th thought about how his peaceful protests were a part um, and so it was really important to me to um, honor his legacy by being very clear and intentional about who he was and how who he was mattered in this moment um, for us. And it is the most amazing thing I've ever done in my entire life to speak to an entirely packed house um, at Music Hall. Um, it, was, it was surreal. It was surreal. And I'm so, I did it. I was terrified, um, but like I tell my children, like I tell everybody, do it scared. Mm -hmm. I did it scared, and it was the best thing I've ever did in my life. I love that. I love yeah. that. Yeah, no, I first saw it, and I was just reading and doing all the research, 
that I've done. And I was like, that's. Have you seen it? It's recorded. I haven't seen it. It is recorded. I'll have to send you the link. Perfect. It's recorded. I think it's actually probably one of the best talks I've ever given. <laughs> we'll have to we'll have to put it in the bios and everything for people to listen to as well. But yeah, I'm sure that was a a, me- a very memorable experience for you. Um, I know we're coming almost to the the close end of that, uh, but I just wanted to bring in more of like Neo and the, the Neo side and the work yeah. that we're doing. Um, and I know you've worked with Neo mm-hmm. in the past. Um, and just kind of provided your stance on the work that is done and how it closely ties with the work that you're doing. Uh, So what would you say you see as the importance of Neo's work uh, providing pro bono consulting to minority businesses, specifically through like the niche focus of Mm -hmm. business analytics uh, for Neo members, minority businesses, and just the Cincinnati campus overall? Yeah. So I think that there are a couple of things that sort of draw me to Neo. One of the things that, you know, first drew me to you all when you reached out to me is that you have a lot of folks in your organization that are not themselves or do not themselves hold minoritized identities, right? Mm -hmm. You got a lot of white guys that you all work with. um, And you all have an uncanny... um, sense of the fact that that means something, that these white people are coming into these spaces trying to connect with these black business owners. And so how I first connected with you all is some of the white guys in NEO Mm -hmm. contacted me and asked me to do a bias training with them so that we can talk more about things that they should be thinking about as white guys interacting with the black businesses. And I thought to myself like, these young people are with it and I am with it, right? Because part of the sort of risk of the kind of work that you all are doing is that you can appear as saviors, like you know more. Mm -hmm. Um, Particularly, you know, we see white men often either accidentally or intentionally fall into that space. And so to have these guys, um, Josh, I think is his name, to have them, approach me and say like we know that this could be a barrier Mm -hmm. and we want to make sure that we're thinking about all the things that we need to be thinking about as we're doing this work that to me was like yes i can be involved with this and what this group is doing i think the other thing as it relates to working with the businesses directly is there are it's hard to start a business period Mm -hmm. full stop no matter who you are no matter what business it is you're starting, it is hard to start a business. We know because of systematic injustice and racism that it's even harder for black folks to start businesses. It's harder for them to get loans. It's hard for them to get space. Um, It is really even much more difficult um, for black owned and minority owned businesses in general. And so how awesome is it for them to have somebody that can come in to say like, okay, based on your target market, this is what's happening, Mm -hmm. right? To provide them with those resources that will otherwise cost them money that they don't have, right? And I think that's the important part. You all are providing a service that all businesses can use, but not all businesses can afford to have. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, can be a game changer for small minority-owned businesses because they need that data. They need to understand the landscape of the populations that they're trying to reach. They need to understand what's happening in those populations in case they need to pivot. Right. Like if nobody likes chocolate and I'm selling chocolate cupcakes, how do I know that? Right. Mm -hmm. I could maybe ask a couple people, but we know, no, we need a large sample. We need to understand how people feel about chocolate. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that the 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 service that you all are providing is one that can really make the difference for any business about whether they will be successful or not and the fact that you all are offering that free of service free of charge uh to uh, minoritized business owners is is huge 
Yeah, and I think that's something I've realized throughout my time in NEO, uh, just within the different positions I've held, is that most people, within, if you're in the School of Business, you know that analytics and systemization, optimization are needed for success in business, mm -hmm. but you don't think about the access and the barriers to that financially, like with knowledge and just mm -hmm. understanding of that. So I think NEO makes that known. And just through the work in the companies that we worked with, it just shows that it's not like an already known standpoint. It just goes back to those inconspicuous roots that people think yeah. everyone already knows, but they yep. might not be as relevant and prevalent um, for minority businesses and those within this space. Um, so we talked about a lot today. Uh, it's been such great. I've learned so much myself. So the last three questions are small questions, but what advice would you give to the generations in like middle school, high school coming up? Um, and then the last question is what piece of advice, what's the greatest piece of advice you've ever received? Oh, um, so what advice, I'm gonna start with what advice I would give to the generations. Um, you are enough just as you are. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is so important, you know, going back to thinking about what norms people expect. I think it is hard sometimes as a black woman to show up as my authentic self, right? To not speak properly, right? Um, if you've listened to this podcast, you've probably a couple of times have said to yourself like, what did she just say? Um, because I have my Chicago Southern drawl um, and I don't let that go. That is a part of who I am. I think that African-American vernacular English is super important and I want to normalize that as a mode of communication. Um, and because I just speak it naturally I don't change how I talk um, if I'm finna go I'm finna go yeah. and I don't care who is in the room with me right it can be President Pinto I am finna go and that's just important and so I think it is you are enough just as you are and if you are not they don't deserve you mm -hmm. And that's super important because what happens if I lose myself then I'm miserable just doing a thing for you and I don't even know who I am anymore. I reject that. I don't have to be somebody else to be successful. I am more than enough. And if they don't think I am, they don't deserve me, period, full stop. And that's it. Um, what is the most, what is the best advice um, I have gotten? Um, I've gotten better at this over the years, but I think it's to pause. Um, I am a passionate person. I think lots of people doing the kind of work that I'm doing, we have to be passionate um, and forceful. Um, that sometimes equals hot-headed. <laughs> it's a good hot-headed mm -hmm. though. Um, but to just pause, I think that we live in a society that um, tricks us into thinking that we have to go fast, go quickly, right? Go, go quickly, get there, get there. Mm -hmm. um, but it's okay to just pause. And I think sometimes when we pause, we can think more clearly. And so I think that is probably some of the best advice I've gotten on this journey is to just pause. You don't have to respond right away. You don't have to have the answer right away. Um, just pause. It's okay to just pause for a moment so you can get a clear head. I love that. I love that, especially the advice piece and the pause piece. That's what I found. If you just kind of let things work from the the work that you've already put in, yeah. it'll, it'll show and it'll come. It'll come about. But we spoke about so much from your roles within yeah. uh, the University of Cincinnati, how you got to the University of Cincinnati, 
uh, some of the research and the initiatives that you're involved in here um, in NEO's work. So I just wanted to say thank you on part of NEO uh, as well as myself. I had an amazing conversation. I think we went over our time limit, but it's okay because we were having great, it was great so conversation. Thank you all for having flow. me. I really, you all make me feel like a rock star. <laughs> so I you just, are I a rock star. I love chatting with y'all. Thank y'all for having but me. Yes, perfect. That was an episode of In the Know with Neo. Thank you for listening. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you're interested in learning more about Neo's mission and vision, follow us on social media at Neo Initiative or visit our website at neocincy.com. Thank you.